It's January 16, 2019, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lum. First up, uh, we'll hear from Isar Mustafanazad, and uh, he's going to talk about the IEEE Communications Futures Conference. And then we have Garvey Candela, who's here in town from Twitch. He's the Director of Strategic Partnerships, and he's going to talk about a program over at UH. And then we'll hear from Mary Beth Lechak, and she is here to talk about something I'm so excited about. It's the New Horizon Project and the asteroid Ultima Thule and how Canada-France Hawaii Telescope played a role in that mission. First up, I want to welcome Isar to the show. He's here to tell us about this IEEE Communications Futures Conference. Welcome to the show. Hi, Bert. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so now the this weekend is... Uh, Kind of a big weekend because there's all this uh, telecommunications folks coming into town because of PTC. But this is something interesting because uh, this is kind of at the beginning, and it was especially programmed or or scheduled so that it might catch some of the folks that are in town, right? So tell us, how did you get involved with it, and what is it? What is it? What is IEEE, and what is the communications future? Yes, of course. So uh, a little bit of uh, background, IEEE, spelled I-E-E-E, is Institute for Electronics and Electrical Engineers. Mm -hmm. It is the world's largest professional society. It has about 400 and some thousand members and uh, purely run by by volunteers like myself who are practicing engineers, essentially. Uh, uh, They basically, they they have standards that are out there, like Wi-Fi that you use is Mm -hmm. standardized by IEEE. They have uh, societies that... Uh, where academics and industry, industrial people get together to discuss uh, technical topics, and one of them is communications. Um, and as you mentioned, PTC, uh, Pacific Telecommunication Council, is uh, the big conference here. It's starting on Monday. Uh, we decided to have a, a pre-PTC uh, day, and which is uh, sponsored by the IEEE Communications Society. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, you know, before I forget, you know, Isar, I want you to at least tell people what you do. I mean, I know you're, uh, you're a practicing engineer, but you've got a pretty cool company. So give us a real brief on, on your company. Oh, yeah, of course. So uh, I am founder and CEO at Nalu Scientific. It's mm-hmm. a local startup here. We've been around for about three years. Uh, we are designing a special type of microchip for the U.S. Department of Energy. And we're, we're trying to help scientists uh, measure time faster and better and more efficiently, essentially. Great. So in terms of the uh, conference now, so the communications, uh, communications future, what are some of the topics that they might be covering? And where are we going in terms of the future of communications? Of course, this is a one-day event packed starting 8.45 and ending at 3 o'clock and back-to-back speakers and also a panel that I'm running. Uh, some of the topics that are discussed are wireless connectivity in rural areas, uh, optical networking, uh, drones and UAVs. Uh, there is also a panel that I'm chairing on networked uh, smart agriculture and machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, there are talks on public safety networks, uh, uh, doubling spectral efficiency to just pack in uh, more data through through the air. And also at the end, we also talk about artificial intelligence for networks. Now, the future that you're talking about is not that far off. I mean, a lot of the things that you just mentioned are actually happening as we speak. That's why we say the future is sooner than you think. <laughs> who, who do you want to attend this? Uh, the talks are uh, a combination of technical and business uh, side. So uh, I think it's uh, geared towards more 
uh, general public to mm-hmm. some extent. Uh, there will be a, a mixed, a good mix of audience uh, presence uh, from the from the business side and also the the general public. So we're we're hoping to cater to people that are that could be in policy, that could just be you know want to uh, expand their horizon. People that could be uh, working at at, uh, at corporations such as Hawaiian Telecom, mm-hmm. uh, banks, uh, you know Hawaiian Electric uh, that want to actually expand their 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 horizon and see what's what else is going on in the well, field. This basically. is great. This is great. So this is going to take place on uh, Saturday the nineteenth. So give us the details. Yes. So it is actually at the Hilton Hawaiian Village, uh, and uh, there is a, it's a full day of events. Uh, you can. Uh, uh, a Google actually IEEE communication uh, uh, futures mm-hmm. conference and it's uh, yeah so uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah I'll definitely put the uh, show um, the link up on the show notes for later on tonight if anybody's interested and actually they can register I think you got a pretty good price for the for for the Kamaaina right absolutely so the code is Kamaaina fifty that's for uh, locals so oh, that okay. uh, the rate going rate is ninety nine dollars but with this code you get uh, fifty forty nine fifty which is about fifty dollars yeah. Yeah. Sounds good, 50% discount. Thanks, Isar, for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me, Bert. And next up, we want to welcome Garvey Candela from Twitch. I'm so happy to have somebody from Twitch <laughs> finally on the show. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Garvey, I want to ask you, what brings Twitch to Hawaii? Um, the University of Hawaii is looking to create a really, really unique program and it's really looking to create a lot of opportunities for young people in a brand new industry. Now, now I, I, I must step back a little bit because maybe there might be one or two listeners out there that might want to want to know what is Twitch. So Twitch is a live interactive and social broadcast platform. So it's a video platform. Um, everything's live and in real time. And there's great ways to interact with content creators, broadcasters and fellow like minded individuals. You know, the uh, it's become super popular with esports. So League of Legends and people can basically screencast gameplay. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are spending <laughs> hours hours in their day watching other people play. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. We have over 300 million active users. Average median age is 26 years old. Mm-hmm. And in 2017, we had 355 billion minutes worth of content consumed on our platform. That's about 675,000 years. 2018, we're up a, a tremendous amount as well. Now, you know, in terms of the, the whole esports uh, uh, popularity, I mean, there have been competitions that have, you know, purses in the, to the tune of millions of dollars. Absolutely. So TI, the international, um, it's for a game called Dota, Defense of the Ancients. Mm-hmm. Um, they had their finals in Seattle last year, and I believe the prize pool is $28 million. Um, that's outside of the player salaries, which is quite significant, and then the revenue that they can make on Twitch as a platform as well. It adds up to quite significant money for younger people. Now we've had uh, we've had Sky from the uh, University of Hawaii Communications Department come on and talk about the plans for the university to actually get involved with some esports curriculum. Mm-hmm. So you're here to help perhaps su- support that, right? So I spoke at the class, and it's really I think a, a gateway into a broader look. What we're trying to do is teach business and entrepreneurialism through uh, in digital media and new media using the medium of esports and gaming to really engage students and make education their hobby while giving them real ammo on their cover letter and Mm -hmm. their portfolios that show these proof of executions that actually have qualitative and quantitative data that shows that they're professionals. 
So what is it about Twitch's involvement that will help perhaps guide them or provide them with you know, resources or best practices to achieve that goal? Right. The Twitch student program was created by me in 2000, early 2015. Um, I've been in this industry for 25 years. So 25? The tw- esports arena? No, no. Uh, ga- gaming. Okay. Gaming and e- it evolved into esports. Mm-hmm. I got my start in 1993 as mm-hmm. a competitive Magic the Gathering player. Um, and, of course, that was just a card game that you played in person. Um, but I've been through every evolution and milestone in this industry. Mm-hmm. So this is really what we bring is just a little bit of insight, a little bit of knowledge. And Twitch and Amazon provide some really great tools for universities and students to become empowered and confident by earning through this education. So I, I don't really think it's wise to just give people things. But if you give them a great education and give them the tools that they need to actually earn money, this is what we want to do is empower Mm-hmm. and give confidence to young people in a brand new space. So how do you envision, how does Twitch envision interacting or supporting the university in their curriculum development? So I advise them. I look at all the curriculum. So what I might do is help with one class, understand how that might segue into multiple classes, and then figure out how each discipline, each subject, each department can have a small one class that's part of a major that teaches people, let's say, marketing or art in new media through the medium of esports and gaming. Okay, great. And then, uh, of course, uh, the the folks over at uh, HPU also have a pretty uh, spiffy esports arena. Do you have plans to talk to them as well? Absolutely. So tomorrow I have all day planned um, to go there and hear what they're about. It's very important to understand their side, what their goals are, what they're doing, what they've done, and then explain a little bit where I am, um, what my plans are, what my vision is for a comprehensive holistic program that encompasses the entire student body. Um, so we'll we'll merge minds and we'll figure out what a great direction is to the great benefit of students. And ultimately, that's what it should be about. Where can people find out more information about what you're doing with respect to Twitch and the University of Hawaii? Um, it's very easy. You just Google or do any search for Twitch student. Mm-hmm. And and the, the my specific portal on this program will be available. And there's lots of great information on every nuance of the program and how you could earn, how you could be a part of it, how you could grow community and express yourself. Sounds good. I'll put that up on the show notes for later on tonight. Uh, thanks, Garvey, for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great sound. Okay, so we will take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Mary Beth Lechak, and she is going to tell us about the New Horizon mission. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Chaminade University, Inter-Island Solar Supply, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. The most unique thing about public radio is the diversity. Whether it's HPR1 or HPR2, the diversity is totally amazing. And you don't get that from any other platform or news outlet. But Hawaii Public Radio, you turn it on in your car, you never know what fascinating information or music you're going to discover. It's fabulous. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. Now joining us in the studio is Mary Beth Lechak. And Mary Beth is the Outreach Program Manager over at the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope. 
I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here today. Now, you know, I um, I met Mary Beth way back when uh, she was over at Windward Community College at the Imaginarium. Yeah, I was the manager at the Imaginarium at Windward for four years. It's a fabulous place. You should, everybody, all of your listeners should go check it out. Yeah, now you've uh, moved on from the Imaginarium to a, a huge telescope. I mean, that's pretty exciting. It is, it is. This is my second stint at CFHT. We're a 3.6-meter telescope on the summit of Mauna Kea. Um, and it's a real delight to do the public outreach. And it's community engagement. It's explaining science. It's a, it's a really fabulous job, and I love it. Now, do you, um, you also got a chance to get involved with this New Horizons mission. And so I want to get uh, a sense of what, what was the, the New Horizons mission all about? I know... Uh, well, was it last year or maybe 2017? They there was a flyby of of Pluto, and there were some really pretty neat photos that came out as a result of that. That was New Horizon, right? Yeah, that was actually 2015. Time oh, really whoa. flies <laughs> when you're having fun. And so, when New Horizons was launched in 2006, Pluto, as we knew it, was a tiny little speck, mm-hmm. like four or five pixels on it on a, on an image. And the New Horizons mission brought us those beautiful pictures that we all see. The heart on Pluto, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. backlit picture of the beautiful atmosphere and haze surrounding the planet, pictures of its moon, Sharon. And so the New Horizons mission that we're talking about today is a continuation of that. It's um, uh, the flyby of a new object that was discovered after New Horizons actually launched. So when New Horizons launched, this object that they just flew by, MU-69 or Ultimate Thule, as it's been nicknamed, didn't, it existed, but we didn't even know it existed at the time of launch. Okay, so uh, just to backtrack a little bit, so the New Horizons uh, mission started, when did it launch? It launched in 2006 and took nine years to get to Pluto. And after it it. Did the photos of Pluto? I thought perhaps. Well, you know, it's it's that's pretty much done. I mean, it's you know maybe exiting exiting the solar system, but it actually went to an asteroid belt called the Kuiper Belt. Correct. And how far is the Kuiper Belt from Pluto? It is so. I'll the distances are preposterous. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the ultimate Thule or MU sixty nine, as I like to call it, um, is about four billion miles from the sun. If we put that in terms that people can understand a little bit more concretely, there's six light hours. So it takes uh, the light from the sun six hours to reach ultimate. Thule, or MU69, and that means that when the data is sent back to the Earth, it takes six hours for that signal to get back to Earth. Okay, so I, uh, you know, uh, let's say the mission, they're, they're passing Pluto, and they're looking at, you know, what's next, and there's this asteroid belt. Why Ultima Thule? I mean, like, this is like a little bitty asteroid. What, what made it stand out as a objective for the New Horizons mission? So it's super tiny. It's about 20 miles in diameter. And what makes it stand out is it's on the way. So On the way to what? On the way past Pluto. Okay. So when the object, when the New Horizons team were looking for something, we know of a whole bunch of objects out in the Kuiper Belt. There was a survey that CFHT did several years ago with a Canadian program called OSIS, the Outer Solar System Origin Survey. During that survey, they discovered over 800 little icy worlds past Neptune. But what makes MU69 unique is that it's right 
in a path or would have been in a path that we didn't have to do a whole lot of trajectory movements on the spaceship. So as New Horizons launched, it it had a finite amount of fuel. And so to get to an object, the question was, if we want to continue this mission, we need something we don't have to do a ton of trajectory course corrections to be able to hit this or Mm -hmm, buzz mm -hmm. past this object. Mm -hmm. So uh, in terms of... um Selecting it, were there some unique uh, characteristics of this asteroid that that drew people's curiosity? Well, what's really funny about it is it, as I said, wasn't discovered when New Horizons left. And up until about three weeks before the launch, it wasn't bigger than a tiny one or two pixels. Mm-hmm. There was a massive campaign after the object was discovered. So it was discovered in 2014 using the Hubble Space Telescope. But to get an idea of the shape of it, they actually did observations from a bunch of different places on Earth of an occultation. So they knew where they thought Ultima Thule MU69 was, and it passed in front of a star and just blinked the light from the star for two frames on mm-hmm, an image. Mm-hmm. So from those two frames, the, the team had an idea that it might be peanut-shaped, Oh, yeah? And okay, they so had <laughs> just from the blink of the the star? Just from the blink of the way the star blinked, that it might be peanut-shaped and that it was probably in the 15 to 20-mile size. Now, that would be interesting because, you know, if you saw something that had a interesting shape that might draw your attention. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely they were excited about it. But by the time they realized that it had an interesting shape, they were already committed to going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in terms of uh, Canada-France telescope's involvement, what, what role did the, did the C- CFHT play? So we actually played two roles in this. Um, so the first one was starting in about 2003 and moving onward, we have an astronomer that uses CFHT regularly, Dr. J.J. Cavallars from the National Research Council of Canada. And J.J. and his team, they were part of this OSIS team that I mentioned before. But prior to that, their whole goal is mapping the outer solar system. And so they didn't discover MU69. JJ didn't. However, he was able to give some criteria, some areas in the sky where the New Horizons team might want to look with the Hubble Space Telescope. And while this work was being done at CFHT, the Subaru Observatory, also on the summit of Mauna Kea, astronomers using Subaru, were, they were also looking and trying to find an object that would be appropriate for um, New Horizons to visit. Mm-hmm. So that was the first way. The second way is once it was discovered with the Hubble Space Telescope, Hubble is a phenomenal, phenomenal telescope. And when you look at the Hubble images, the precision to which you can measure things as they relate to other objects on the image is incredible. But you lack a larger context. You lack a giant map or a catalog. Hubble would be like taking a picture of your house and your neighbor's house. You have all of those really exquisite details. But if I handed it to you, Bert, you wouldn't be able to find my house. CFHT CFHT, um, created uh, a catalog. One of our astronomers that is, again, at the National Research Council of Canada, Dr. Stephen Gwynn, he made this exquisite map. And so that map was used to calibrate that Hubble image. Mm -hmm. So when they were flying to MU69, they could minimize the number of course corrections they needed because of Stephen's map. 
So the okay, so I do want to ask you about some of those course corrections. I mean, and how much did they have to boost one thruster, you know, to actually get it on the right path? Want to hold that thought? We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Mary Beth Lechak about the New Horizon Ultima Thule, and this is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Island Insurance, and Sacred Hearts Academy. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum, and if you're just joining us, we're talking to Mary Beth Lechak, and she is with uh, the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope. We're talking about the New Horizon mission and the role played by the CFHT telescope to actually navigate toward Ultima Thule. So right before the break, you were telling me about the images that the uh, telescope provided, and they were able to actually, what, change some course correction, make some navigational adjustments. I mean, what, what actually takes place? I mean, mission control, are they, are they pressing the accelerator button, or what's going on? So now we're getting into the part that I know a little bit less about. But yeah, they do are actually using thrusters at mission control. Mm-hmm. So um, I was at mission control right. for the flyby launch, right. and the mission operation manager, Alice Bowman, was fabulous. I didn't have a chance to meet her personally, but her... Her team and the navigation team, they were responsible for all of these course corrections. Mm-hmm. And so if you can imagine, you have a spacecraft that's moving like 31,000 miles per second, trying to fly by something the size of Waimea to, to Honoka'a, basically, on the big island. Mm-hmm. And so the precision that they needed to make these changes were really fantastic. Um, and so the map that Stephen created, he, he had it in Canadian units because he's Canadian, but I translated it to, to U.S. His precision was the eye of FDR on a dime from a half a mile away. Wow. So that was uh, you know something that I guess helped them get the, as close as they could to the object. Now, when they got to the object, and I saw some of the you know, initial sort of blurry images and, and then they came into focus and it, it sort of looks like, uh, uh, you know, like the Hawaiian instrument that you can use as a percussion, uh, the ipu. And what would you guys say would be the reaction that the astronomers had or the people at Mission Control had when they actually saw this? Well, I was actually there mm-hmm. when they saw it and it was amazing. We all kind of thought it looked like a snowman or BB-8 to kind of give some some other context there. And a lot of people, it was a big debate, you know, is this one object? Is it two objects that are close together? What they're calling it now is a contact binary. So these would be two objects that at some point stuck together you could probably use the word collided, mm-hmm. kind of stuck together and formed um, this one object that's connected. And the reason that this is so important and interesting for astronomers is this region of, of our solar system, the Kuiper Belt, is pristine. It has the oldest pieces, the less varnished by time pieces in our solar system. So when we want to look at how our solar system formed, how the Earth formed, how other planets form, seeing one of these contact binaries up close really gives us an idea of if our hypotheses are are on the right direction. Now, when looking at the uh, Ultima Thule, were they able to determine its composition? 
So that is a really fantastic question that we don't entirely have all of the detailed answers to yet. So the really interesting thing about this flyby was it occurred January 1st, um, 2019, and then Pluto and New Horizons and MU69 moved behind the sun. So for about a week, we had no contact with the space probe. Mm -hmm. And so it couldn't send information back to us. Mm. And so just this week, I think actually just Monday or Tuesday, we started getting data back from it again. So this will take about 20 months or so to download all of the data from New Horizons. And one of the first things that they're going to look at is the color. Is it red? Is it blue? How red is red? And I know several of the team that I was there with, JJ and Steven, they all kind of have informal bets as to how red the red is. So there will be, over the course of the next 20 months, sort of images that are then released to the public, and we'll get a better sense as to what the ultimate tool looks um, You know, in the... In the you know, minutes that we have left, uh, how did it get its name? So when an object's discovered, it gets a catalog name. Mm-hmm. So its official formal name is 2014 MU69. Mm-hmm. That's just a catalog name. Um, Ultima Thule was the name that was given to it as a nickname. Um, MU69, no, 2014 MU69 doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, Ultima Thule comes from the Greek and Latin and Norris sort of map making uh, history, where the Thule, the Ultima Thule, is the farthest beyond, the farthest unknown. This will actually not be the object's final name. Once we know a little bit more about it after the flyby, it'll probably get another name. And that name, there's very specific naming conventions. It'll likely be named after an underworld deity from some civilization in the world. Well, just when I started getting used to Ultima Thule, they're going to change its name. Yes. It's real slow process. So you can always in your heart call it Ultima Thule. Now, as you have been involved with the uh, New Horizon mission, once it's, you know, it's already passed, Ultima Thule, what is it uh, heading toward next? And what can we expect? So at the moment, it's not really heading towards anything except the edges of our solar system. It's going to keep going. There was some discussion. Is there another object that they could go after, that they could look for? Um, again, it's going to be all about the fuel and the fuel consumption. Mm-hmm. Is there another potential target in that kind of line that is being drawn, that orbit that's being drawn by New Horizons? And is, is uh, Canada France involved with perhaps determining another flyby? Oh, we would love to be involved. A lot of that will be up to our PIs. I know that, you know, JJ and Stephen. Um, we also have, you know, a friend of ours, um, Meg Schwab, who works at the Gemini Observatory. She's really involved in this New Horizons program as well with JJ and Stephen. So mm-hmm. we will be, I think, one of the first to know, hopefully. We might not be able to say anything, but if there's a new target, um, I, I would hope that it would come from one of our PIs. Now, in the last minute that we have, I wanted you to give us a Give us a um, a little background on something that the Canada France is involved in called the uh, it's called the Akamai Internship. Tell me about that. So Akamai Internship is a program that is run um, actually interestingly by uh, the IEEE is one of the partners of this from our first um, your first speaker today mm-hmm. where Hawaii high school uh, Hawaii college students you can either be a Hawaii graduate of a Hawaii high school or be a student enrolled at a Hawaii college can apply for STEM positions at the 
um, various high-tech industries across the state. A lot of the observatories are involved. CFHT had three interns last year. And so these are real projects. It's a paid internship. The applications are still open through Valentine's Day. So if any of any of your listeners out there have a, you have a STEM link that student, I could, uh, send them to? Absolutely. So um, I will give you that link because okay. I don't know it off the top of my head. You can look on the CFHT Facebook page. I okay. just posted a link there the other day. Sounds but good. Akamai's fabulous. Well, Beth Ann Lechek is the Outreach Program Manager over at the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And of course, thank you for listening to Bite Marsh Cafe. Join us next week when we will talk about the advances in drone and unmanned aerial vehicles. If you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email me at bitemarks at gmail.com. And you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. Our engineer is David Chong. You can catch us on HPR One every Wednesday or anytime on the HPR app, iTunes, or Stitcher. You stay awesome, and we'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Bite Marks Cafe.